Welcome to the OA Light a Candle Meeting Podcast. Visit our website at www.oalaig.org where you'll find three separate speaker feeds with over 200 speaker files, forms for ordering CDs for these speakers, and a place to donate to keep this special service active. I would now like to introduce our speaker for tonight, Jessica. Hi, I'm Jessica, compulsive overeater. I'd like to thank Lucy for asking me to speak today. She's the first person that ever asked me to speak at a meeting. And of course, my answer was no. Because I felt inadequate and I didn't think that I could help anybody because I was new in the program. And she said, but I got a lot out of what you share in our meetings and I want you to share with others. So I... She gave me the topic for the meeting, and I went home and um, wrote a speech because I didn't think I could actually say it. I was going to read it to you. And then I would turn on the timer, and I would practice my speech, and it wasn't long enough, so I wrote some more. And um, I did that for a couple of days, and then I got to the meeting, and I had this whole speech prepared, and then it was a different topic. (laughs) So that's how my higher power works in my life. I do all this worrying and scurrying and anxious and making it perfect and planning it and wrapping it up in a neat bow and then my higher power just says, nope, not going to happen that way. We have a different plan for you today. And actually, that's been a real blessing in my life because I was always a big controller. I came from a family of controllers. My mother was the ultimate teacher in that department and I followed her footsteps And now, because I'm in this program, really, I don't have to do that anymore. I still do it because I have defects of character, which I work on every day, but it's not an obsession with me the way it used to be. But let me get back to the food. Let me get to the food. I came in a program in 2007. I was 61 years old, and I was about 185 pounds, maybe more, because I stopped getting on the scale at some point. And um, my life really was completely out of control. I was, as somebody says, a high-functioning overeater, but my life was not manageable at all. I couldn't maintain relationships. I fought with my boss almost every week, at least once, and... um, I couldn't stand to buy clothes because I looked horrible in everything that I tried on. So I, I, um, I just hid sort of in my clothes. I wore black all the time because I felt like if I wore a color that I looked like a piece of fruit. And, um, it's true. And so I thought that if I wore this black that you wouldn't see that I was fat. And then one year for my birthday, my friend gave me a birthday present, and she got me a a sweatsuit. And I looked at the size, and it was large. And I'm like, she knows that I'm fat. I was so shocked that she could tell, because I wore black all the time. Talk about, like, crazy thinking. I was a sugar addict always. I can't remember a time that I wouldn't eat anything after. I mean, I wanted only sugar. I didn't care about food. I only wanted sweets and I drove my mother and father crazy at dinner time I wouldn't eat my food I'd just push it around on the plate but dessert I was like first online for dessert 
And so they held that over me. You don't get dessert unless you eat your food. So I ate a little bit. But around age 10, I discovered that food actually tasted pretty good, and I liked it. So that's when I became a compulsive overeater and a sugar addict. And I'm passing around pictures so you can see the results from when I discovered food. You'll, you'll be able to tell. And so I pretty much was on a diet since I was 11 years old. And I was really good at dieting. I was excellent at dieting. I always lost the weight. But then uh, the fatal flaw was I always would start eating sugar again. And then I would get to a certain weight, and then I would think, okay, I'm not going to get any heavier than that. And then I would go on another diet and lose the weight, and then I would start eating sugar again. And that pretty much happened my whole life until I discovered alcohol. And alcohol acts like a sugar in my body, and... So I didn't have to eat as much sugar because I could drink, and that was great. So I did a lot of, I just replaced sugar with alcohol, and now I have two problems. So that's pretty much the way my life went until, until I turned 50. And when I turned 50, as we say, this is a progressive disease, I couldn't lose the weight anymore. I couldn't exercise, I had injuries, and I wasn't able to exercise I'd always been a dancer. I always took dance classes. I walked. I would walk three miles. I'd get up at five in the morning to walk before work. Um, and I couldn't do that anymore. I couldn't exercise, but I still wanted to eat. And so, needless to say, I just started growing in size. And I'm five foot two, so it doesn't take too much to imagine, you know, when I'm 185 pounds at five foot two, I was a pretty hefty girl. And people would still say to me, but you don't look overweight. I'm like, oh, yes, I do, you know. But I knew, I knew what I looked like. I looked at myself in the mirror and I hated myself. I hated what I looked like. And I was still unable to lose the weight. I tried. Every day I would promise I would vow, today is the day. Today I'm not going to eat chocolate. Today I'm, I'm going to stick to this austerity program. Just going to have salad and whatever. And sometimes I could make it all the way to lunch before I went off of that promise. And sometimes I would make it a whole day. And sometimes even a week. But it, wasn't, it was only a matter of time for me before I would have something with sugar in it. And that would just push me back to the beginning. Until finally, just before coming into program, I, um, I was supposed to go to my college reunion. And I didn't have anything to wear. And all my friends were going. My girlfriend called me up. She said, oh, come. We're all going. It's going to be great. I said, well, I don't really know. I can't get off of work. And... I'm not sure if I have the money, I can't get the time off, blah, blah. Lie, 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 and lie. I just didn't want to go because I was fat and I didn't have anything to wear. And at that point, I kind of got this notion that (laughs) my life was out of control. I mean, I was really unable to manage my life. I, I did try. I did go to the store and I tried to find something that looked halfway decent on me, and I couldn't. I thought, I'm not going there. I'm not going there and showing up like this. I'm just not. So I didn't go. But I did have the presence of mind to say something to somebody. And um, 
And that was really the beginning of my, my recovery, even though I wasn't in program at the time. And so one day I went to the closet shortly after that, and I took out all the clothes that I was going to fit into when I got thin again, things that had been in there from 1980, the big shoulder pads and the, the wrap dress that I thought was so fabulous. And um, I realized that even if I did lose this weight by some miracle, the clothes would be out of so so out of style that I would look like I was going to a costume party. So I thought, you know what, I'm not wearing any of these things ever again. There's no way I'm going to lose this weight. This is the way I am, and this is the way I'm going to be. And I just, um, I just decided that day that that's the way it was. And so I threw out everything, or I gave it to the Goodwill or something. I, some of them I couldn't even give to the Goodwill, but a lot of it I just I gave it away or I threw it away. And then I made myself stand in front of the mirror, as I had been told by other people to do, and I thought, never, I would never do this. I never thought I would do this. But there I was, standing in front of my mirror, saying, I accept you the way you are today. It's okay. I love you the way you are today, no matter what you look like. And that was that took a lot for me to do. And I think that that is what got me into this room here, into this meeting. Not this particular meeting, but into a meeting. I had a friend in OA, and she um, was losing weight. And she used to be my eating buddy, so I was very interested in what she was doing to lose all this weight. And she gave me her food plan. She said she was on an eating plan. I'm like, ooh, eating plan. Well, that sounds much better than a diet. So I want to be on an eating plan, too. And she gave me this plan that she was losing this weight on, which I really wanted to do. And I went, there's no way I'm going to eat that. That's not eating like that. I was just like, forget it. No bread. (laughs) And I wasn't willing to do it. I really wasn't willing to do it. So she gave me a, uh, eventually she told me she was in OA. And One day she shared something with me that was very personal and very private and very um, deep, really, really, really important. And she chose me to share it with. And because she did that, I was able to go home that night and throw out all the chocolate and the cookies. I don't know why. Just She didn't say to. She didn't tell me to. I just thought... I think I can do this because I told her we were at dinner she said let's go get dinner I said okay and we were at dinner and then after she told me this thing I said I got to tell you something I already ate dinner but there I was I was going to eat another dinner because I didn't want to say no to you know going out with somebody and she said that's okay you don't have to eat dinner you can just have coffee or something so that's what I did and I went home that night and I threw out the food. And I was absent from that moment on, really. So it's been about three, a little over three and a half years now. I lost 50 pounds in the first year. And I'm maintaining that weight loss for two and a half years. And um, what, what the speaker earlier said, this was a program of attraction and not promotion, that's what she did for me. 
she laid it all out. She said, oh, I went to this meeting, and the speaker was so powerful. I learned so much, and I wrote at this meeting, and I'm getting so much out of it. And I just wanted to find out what was going on here. So I got myself to a meeting eventually. It took me a while. And the very first meeting that I went to, I heard the magic words that I needed to hear. The speaker had been absent from sugar for 24 years, which I thought was pretty miraculous and impossible. And um, But a light bulb went off in my head, and I said, that's what I've been doing wrong. Is that I, he said, and I, and I never, I thought, I realized then that I could never eat sugar again. I went, wow, I can't eat sugar again. I would go on all those diets and I would lose all the weight and I would do it right and then I would eat sugar again. And that's where the equation just didn't quite click. So that was just a, a, a amazing moment for me. I mean, really changed my life. And now I know that I can't eat sugar today. And I went into mourning for sugar because it was my best friend. And I cried because I couldn't eat my granddaughter's birthday cake. And not only couldn't I eat it this year, but I couldn't eat it any year. I could never eat it. And I thought that was so sad. But I realize now how shallow my thinking was because I've learned so much since then that... It's not about the cake. It's about my granddaughter. So I don't need to eat the cake to celebrate her birthday. I just need to be with her to celebrate her birthday. And so my, my thinking has kind of done a complete 180. And my granddaughter, she's, uh, she's seven now, but she was about four when I started program. And one day before I got into program, she said, Grandma, you're fat. And I said, yes, I am. You're right. <laughs> she didn't mean it in a bad way. She was just pushing on my stomach and was being observant. It was true. I couldn't deny it. And now she knows that I can't eat sugar. And she will remind me when she's passing out sugar or, or there's dessert, you can't have that, Grandma. You can't eat sugar. I went, I know, I know that. Thank you for reminding me. <laughs> and... Um, she tells other people who haven't seen me for a long time, they'll come to the door and they'll go, wow, you lost a lot of weight. Grandma can't eat sugar, she'll say. And um, it's just really great. And one day she actually asked me, what happens if you eat sugar? And I told her, I said, well, when I eat sugar, then I can't stop. And she said, oh, okay. And that was a good enough answer for her, and that's all she needed. <laughs> so... Um, for me, the physical part of my recovery was really the easiest part because I had been really good at dieting. I found a food plan that worked for me. I actually made up my own food plan. I eat by food groups. I eat at certain times a day. But in the beginning, it was just about not eating sugar. I did that for six months. I didn't eat sugar. But I substituted for sugar salty snacks. So now I had a whole cabinet full of salty snacks, and I've never been a salty snack type of person who would want to eat a pretzel when you could eat chocolate cake. So um, now I had a whole new little set of food that I liked a lot, and I could play with all that food and all the different kind of snacks, food and bread. I was a real big bread head, and... Um, bread, bread was... Uh, uh-huh. I could eat a loaf of bread with... Butter or without butter, with olive oil or without olive oil, it didn't matter. Um, 
I could I could put away a loaf of bread. So watch out. And um, so I was eating a lot of other stuff besides sugar, and I'm like, why aren't I losing weight? So it suddenly occurred to me that maybe what I was eating was just as important as what I wasn't eating. And then I and I started working on that, and that got into the emotional part of my recovery because um, a lot of it was going on in my head. You know, I still needed this food for some reason. And so as I moved closer, further into the program, I realized that I was doing this sort of like a diet, and I didn't really have a higher power. I didn't believe in God. I didn't believe in, never went to church. I mean, I did when I was a kid, but I wasn't a churchgoer. I really never got religion. I never figured it out. <clears throat> I couldn't understand how people could be so fervent in their belief of this God, and I just didn't get it. One day, it was not long into my abstinence, I'm still eating the extra food, but now I'm, I decided that I would cut down on one meal, just on lunch. I would eat a half a sandwich instead of a whole sandwich. And then eventually that I got to dinner. But the big one for me was the midnight snacks. I was a midnight eater. And my midnight snacks were more like little banquets. <laughs> <laughs> Mini banquets. I would say, well, tonight I'm only... I was just as... I was just as out of control with the snack food as it was with the sugar. I said, well, tonight I'll only eat two crackers, and then seven crackers would end up on my plate. But it wasn't just seven crackers. It was seven crackers with cheese and olives and in the microwave and melted. And, you know, it, it, was, it, it just became an extravaganza. What will my snack going to be tonight? And I would dream up. I would be on my way home from work at 11 o'clock thinking, what am I going to eat when I get home? So... That had to stop, and that was the hardest thing I ever had to do, besides having a baby. <laughs> really. But it didn't take as long to have a baby as it did for me to stop eating these midnight snacks. I, um, I went 30 days. I was white-knuckling it. I, I was really white-knuckling it for 30 days. But I had this friend in OA that I could call, and I thought, I can always call my friend. And so... I made rules for myself. You can't get out of the bed. You're not allowed out of bed. Not allowed in the kitchen. So I would just like hold on. Like I needed restraints. Actually, I needed somebody to like shame me in the bed. But I did. And after 30 days, it was gone. It was like a miracle. So anyway, the physical started taking care of itself. And as soon as I gave up that midnight snack, I started losing weight. So now I'm in Cancun with my entire family, and I've lost about 10 pounds or so. And um, very, very, you know, new abstinence, and I'm with my entire family, my brother, my sister-in-law, my nieces, my nephews, my daughter, my son-in-law, my granddaughter, everybody was there, and I started believing in God that day in Cancun, looking at the Caribbean, God grant me the serenity to accept the things I cannot change because these people were driving me crazy. <laughs> And so I, I serenity prayered my way through this whole week in Cancun with my family. And when I came home, I had a higher power. It was kind of amazing. But the first day, and I hear a lot of people talk about this in meetings, traveling. I went into the um, meal room where you get your breakfast. And they had a buffet that was bigger than the room I'm in right now. 
It was all full of food. Everywhere you looked was food. Every kind of food imaginable for breakfast. And I went, oh, I'm in trouble here. I knew I was in big trouble. I, you know, I had like less than uh, eight months of abstinence. And I thought, oh, I don't know how I could do this. And then I thought for a second, and I thought, okay, here's what you're going to do. You're going to, what would you eat if you were at home? So I listed the things that I would eat for my breakfast, and those are the things that I took from this great bonanza of food. And I did that every day for seven days. And I got through that, that place where you could have anything you eated, could want to eat any time of day or night, and as much as you wanted. I just stuck to my food plan. So I'm a big believer in food plans. And um, and it's not just about, really, about what I'm eating. It's about when do I eat. The first thing I do is I look at the clock. If I want to eat something, I look at the clock. I don't think, gee, I want to eat and go eat. No, I, look, I think, gee, I want to eat, what time is it? And then I look at the clock because my head tells me I'm hungry. But I might not really be hungry. And I've come to know that I can't trust what my head tells me because my head lies to me all the time. My disease is in there just playing with my brain. So I look at the clock, and if it's a meal time, then I think, yeah, I guess I'm hungry. And if it's not a meal time, I think, well, why do I want to eat? So I, I go through the what I'm eating. I already know what my food plan is. And then when am I eating it? And then if, I, if, I, if it's not a time that I'm supposed to be eating... Why do I want to eat this food? And usually my two big offenders are anxiety and boredom. Sometimes I'm anxious, and it seems like the solution to whatever computer problem I'm having is in the refrigerator. (laughs) (laughs) One day I was sitting at my computer, and I was getting hungry, because I was getting frustrated by the computer, and I couldn't figure out how to do what I wanted to do. And I had one foot off the chair, and I was like... Heading toward the kitchen. I'm like, where do you think you're going? It was because I was anxious, and so I thought food would be the answer. But fortunately, I looked at the clock, and I went, you're not going anywhere. Just sit right down. Take your time. It's going to get solved. It doesn't have to happen in the next three seconds. It's going to be okay. How do I eat? Well, do I just shove that food in my mouth, or do I sit at the table? Do I eat like a lady? Do I use utensils? Do I eat out of a bag? Do I put it in a, in a bowl? How does it look when I eat? And that's a big factor for me because, you know, I don't do any open container eating, no reaching into the, into the bag. If I'm going to eat anything with little pieces, I have to put it in a bowl. And I discovered that on the back of the package they put suggested serving size, something I never knew about. Or if I did see it, I would just laugh because... Whatever they think of suggested serving sizes was never enough for me. I'm like, who do they think they're talking to? So those are some of the, the, thing, the tools that I use around food because my disease tells me that even though it says that a half a cup is a serving size, you can have two cups. And that seems perfectly reasonable to me. So I just, I read the thing, I figure there's somebody there who's getting paid to write these suggested serving sizes that maybe knows a little bit more about this product than I do and I just I choose to believe them and this is something I had to learn I had to learn to read and follow directions 
And where am I eating? Am I eating in my bed? Am I eating in the car? Am I eating on the way somewhere? Or am I having a regular meal? So oh, that's for me the, the, the big ones. What, when, how, where, and why I eat. I have to think about that before I take a bite. And if that doesn't work, I call somebody. I've learned that I cannot do this by myself. I mean, I'm pretty self-disciplined, but my will has gotten me to 185 pounds, so I choose not to listen to my will anymore. I know I need help. And if I can't get past that who, what, when, where, why thing, I just call somebody. And that usually saves the day for me. I wanted to talk about my emotional recovery. I learned about a year into the program, even though I heard it. I heard it many, many times. It just didn't register with me because my head was just full of food. Once the food got taken care of, I was able to actually listen to some of the things that I heard in the meetings, and I discovered that this was not just a physical disease, but emotional and spiritual. And I thought, oh, that's interesting. I already know I have a higher power, so that's good. And I can rely on that higher power. And I and I did. I started praying and reading and all that. But the emotional recovery was really the hardest for me. I'm a very judgmental, critical person. I learned at the foot of the master. <laughs> My mother was just like, nobody ever did it perfect enough for her. And I, I learned that behavior. My parents were extremely critical, extremely judgmental. And you would have thought that they were, you know, perfect paragons of virtue, and they weren't. <laughs> they were alcoholics and compulsive overeaters, but nobody else measured up. And this is how I learned. And so I went through life criticizing and judging everything and everybody. Mostly, worst of all, myself, but I spent a lot of, believe me, I spent a lot of time on you. So, I found that even though the food situation was doing okay, and I was losing the weight, and I, I did believe in a higher power, my head would not stop. My head would not shut up. It just drove me crazy. It was like that tape on the television where it runs at the bottom of the screen. Blah, 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 the whole day. The first thought that I would have in the morning was a judgmental thought, usually about the President of the United States. (laughs) (laughs) This is 2007. Um, Because I would listen to the news in the morning and I would think, oh, and then I would be off and running for the day. My judgmental whatever would be in full gear and um, I, I couldn't stop myself. I just couldn't. So I decided that instead of having all this judgmental crap running through my head, that what I would do is memorize the 12 steps. And I don't know how many of you could stand up and say the 12 steps right now without looking, but I can, because that was the only thing that I could do to stop my head from running on. And I realized that like the little tape at the bottom of the screen, if you're reading the tape, you're not listening to what the person on the screen is saying. You're reading the tape. And that's the way it was. If I'm listening to that tape running through the middle of my head, I am not in my present life. 
I'm somewhere else, pontificating. And so I started memorizing the 12 steps. And it took a while to get it word perfect. But what it did for me was it stopped me from thinking. And when I would start that judgmental, critical thing going on in my head, I would say, well, somebody needs to recite the 12 steps. (laughs) And so then I would say, I would go through the 12 steps until that voice would just be quiet. Because I realized you can't think two things at the same time. You can do two things at the same time, but you can't think two thoughts at the same time. So I would, just the way I replaced the food in my food plan, I replaced the thoughts in my head with program. And I didn't just stop there. I memorized everything. I have a whole book right here of all the prayers that I say in the morning. And I have them all by heart. I know every single one. They're all in my head. So wherever I am on Cancun or anywhere else, I can say these prayers. I can say these program thoughts instead of what my disease wants to talk about, which is usually something judgmental, critical, impatient, you're incompetent, talking about you and all your faults, or me and all my faults. That reminds me of defects of character. I would like to talk about that a little bit. I started working the steps. I was already nine months abstinence before I got a sponsor, not the approved way to do things. Um, And I didn't really want to work the first three steps because I had those down. And I was going to go right to step four. And she said, no, no, we started step one. And I'm like, but I already have those steps. She goes, no, no, we started step one. Okay. So I started step one, two, and three. By the time I got to four, I didn't really want to do step four. Because I realized what it was all about. I went, oh, I don't know. But I did it. I did step four. I did step five. did step six, which is kind of easy. And then it came to step seven. And then... I did step seven, and I said, okay, now what? And she goes, well, now you have to work on that every day. I went, but they're not, my defects of character aren't removed. They're not gone. But I did step seven. I thought they were just going to be automatically, miraculously lifted. That was a bad day. I was, I was so unhappy that day. I'm like, oh, I'm going to do this every day. So that's what I do now. I do step seven every day. I do, I do step one, two, three, and step seven, and step ten, and step eleven every day. In step, in step seven, I love step seven because it reminds me that I'm not perfect, and I need to be reminded of that every day. It also reminds me that you're not perfect, and I need to be reminded of that every day because I am very impatient. And I hate things that are incompetent or that aren't efficient or that aren't just right. It drives me crazy. So I have to work on these defects every day because I'm dealing with people all the time. So one of the four today messages that I say every day is, I'm going to go through all these, I will be agreeable. And that's a tough one for me because I never was agreeable. If I got somebody on the phone that wasn't doing what I want, I would read them the riot act, you know. Um, I will look as good as I can, dress becomingly. Now, it's hard for me because I spent a lot of years hiding my body, and I didn't care what I looked like. I didn't wear makeup. I didn't care. I didn't care. I hated what I looked like. I hated who I was. Why should I bother? So now I make an effort to look nice because it's a measure of my self-esteem. It's not an ego thing. It says I care about myself, and I, and I approve of myself, and I like myself. So I'm going to treat myself nicely. 
talk low, which was a big one because I came from a family where yelling was the language of the land and whoever yelled the loudest won. So I was very good at yelling. I was very good at arguing and winning an argument. And I could yell louder than you. I could. So I have to remind myself to be gentle, to be in a normal tone of voice. Act courteously. You would think that would be easy, but it is not easy for me. I don't want to act courteously. I want it done now. And I don't really care if I hurt your feelings. So I have to pretend at the beginning. I had to pretend that I was being courteous. Now it's much easier. Um, criticize not one bit. Well, that should be in great big old capital letters in my, over in my, uh, my house. And not find fault with anything. Those two things go together. Criticize not one bit and not find fault with anything. If I can get through a day without doing those two things, well, I'm doing pretty good. And the last one, try, and try not to improve or regulate anybody but myself. <sighs> well, that leaves me a lot of spare time, really. <laughs> because, believe me, you all could use a lot of improvement. <laughs> and so this is the four, one of the four, first four today messages that I ever heard. And I thought, this is all my defects of character, right, in this one little, one little message. And I read this at a... I, talked about this at a meeting where I spoke and when I, I read all those things and the one girl who's like shaking her head now is like I said yeah it's a lot isn't it and that is what I do every day I work on those things plus a whole bunch of more ones but I, those are the ones that I wanted to talk about today so I got the emotional thing under some kind of better management not mine my higher power was taking over the emotional part of me and my emotional Part of me wants to isolate, so I have to do social things. I have to plan social time because I just want to be alone in my bed. Uh, spiritual. That I did. Did I talk about spiritual? No. I. I really. I, I do all these prayers every morning and at night. And the last thing I do at night is I do a tenth step every night, and um, and then I do a gratitude list. And I wait till I put my head on the pillow and I go through my day with my tenth step. And what could I have done better today? And actually, actually write things down. What could I do better today? I have a little list here. Think before I speak. Be friendly. Smile. Remember, I am not running the show. Be patient. Be tolerant. Reserve judgment. These are hard for me. These are things I have to remember every day. And whenever I do that, what could I have done better today? And if I'd done something that I need to apologize for, I write that down on my on my list because I need constant reminders that I'm not running the show, that people are human, that they're not perfect, that I'm not perfect, and it's okay. That's the big message for me. It's okay. We don't have to be perfect. It's okay. It's okay to make mistakes. The spiritual part of the program for me was such a great, a great relief to let my higher power be in charge because I was so busy running the show and now I have a little bit of spare time in my life and I can do other things. I have hobbies and I and I have friends and I have a social life and I I live my life now instead of thinking it, thinking about something in the future or something in the past. I was always a time traveler. I was never in my present day. Never present in my day, never in my present day. Neither one of those two things. I was always out there somewhere, either fearful of the future or 
Why did he do that to me? Why did they do that to me? Something in the past was what I spent my time with. So half of my life just floated by me. And the rest of it was spent doing all my defects of character in full swing. And I have gotten so many things from being in this program, and I wrote down a few. I have, I have friends. I have fellows. I have a sponsee. I have five sponsees. I have a wonderful sponsor who's very patient with me. I have the literature, the great literature of this program, the words of Bill W., which I just think he's so wonderful, such a great writer. I have a higher power that I didn't used to have. And as they promise in this program, I'm actually happy and joyous and free for the first time in my life. I've probably never been happier in my life than I am today, right now. And... um, the best part about the program is that I only have to do it one day at a time. Thank you.